Welcome to the Be Ruthless Show, where we have the conversations that other people don't, the conversations that other people won't. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and I'm ready to make a lot of noise and disrupt things ruthlessly. Thanks for being here today. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to the Be Ruthless Show. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and I am really excited to have Hazel Gale with me today. Hazel's a former kickboxer and boxer with multiple world, European, and national titles. Her outward success, however, had a dark side. The stress of competition and relentless self-doubt drove her into an emotional and physical burnout that led to years of chronic illness. Hazel's eventual recovery inspired her to qualify as a therapist and coach, and for over a decade, she worked with high-level athletes, business executives, and others as a master practitioner of cognitive hypnotherapy, an evidence-based approach that combines elements of cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy and traditional hypnotherapy with theories of modern neuroscience. Her book, The Mind Monster Solution, was published internationally and became an Amazon bestseller in both mental health and psychology. Currently, Hazel is the co-founder and the chief creative officer of Betwixt, an award-winning app that blends psychology with interactive storytelling to make wellness feel like an adventure instead of a chore. Well, don't we all need that? Absolutely. It really needs to happen. Thank you so much for being here. And, you know, um, people do say it feels like a chore. Yeah. I mean, well... It can be. I mean, it's not necessarily a chore, but it can be threatening and uncomfortable and there's all this resistance. And that's why we wanted to create the app, because we're aware of that. You know, there are these amazing mental health apps out there and mindfulness apps out there that are so well put together. And if people stick with them, they can see great results, but they don't tend to stick with them because there's all this resistance. So we wanted to see if we could create something that would be enjoyable in itself and would bring you know, sort of bring you in in a safe and interesting way so that you can actually do the work that we all want to do but it, but have fun at the same time and and you know as kids we all have fun then we grow up and the world and life and noise kind of interferes and we lose some of that innocence um i love the athletic conversation and that you talked about the toll it took not just physically Oh God. I mean, physical was the least of it. I mm. mean, I, I, so I, I got into fighting late. I, I did a degree in, in fine art and I was working in a bar after that because that's what you do with a fine art degree. Right. Um, and I met a guy that I liked and I just followed him blindly into this kickboxing gym that he attended. Um, it did not work out with the guy, <laughs> but, but that didn't matter because I instantly fell in love with fighting I absolutely, I mean, I just had an immediate connection with it, which was unusual because at that point I was really unhealthy. I was a smoker. I drank, you know, minimum a bottle of wine a day. Looking back on it, I don't know how I got through it. But I gave all of that stuff up to fight um, and loved it, but also looked at it completely in the wrong way and put so much pressure on winning and everything was binary. You know, I was to the point where I didn't just have to win my fights. I also had to win the press up competitions at the gym or the who's got the biggest bicep competition down the pub. It was it was ludicrous. And I could see it was happening, but I couldn't I didn't really understand how important it was that I change it until I I just couldn't take it anymore. And I burnt out. I was chronically anxious, very depressed and physically I got to the point where I couldn't get up a flight of stairs without stopping to catch my breath, which for somebody who prided themselves on being a strong 
warrior athlete you know was really it was like a it was like a death really um so where was the question i'm oh, sorry i forgot what the original question was we we, we don't talk about the, oh, the physical strain the, the emotional strain um i played sports my whole life and they just tell you to get back in there you know shake it off yeah. so the taking the time to even just process things is not acknowledged accepted allowed no, it's, I mean, everyone would pay lip service to it. They would say, oh, yeah, you'll get nervous. Yeah, I get nervous. But nobody ever really said that in a way that made it sound like it was okay. And I remember being told time and time again, you've just got to make fear your friend. I think Tyson famously said that at one point. And so people would throw this sort of aphorism around that sounded great. But where was the instruction manual? How the How the hell are you meant to make something like fear your friend? There's no way to do that and ultimately you know what that's what I got in I went to therapy and therapy slowly but definitely changed my life and changed my outlook and then I stepped away from fighting to train as a therapist um, and then you know I wrote a book on this whole process and the book really is just a metaphorical version of how to make fear your friend it's it was the idea was to turn these abstract painful experiences into something concrete that you can learn to empathize with and understand and therefore you know it reintegrate and ultimately you know reorganize um, and betwixt is the same process it's just this idea of of giving people a creative and safe space to look at and engage with the sticky difficult dark things so that you can come out the other side feeling differently about them it's so important to discuss that because so many people think it's fearless, right? Like you reach a point where you have no fear and it, it's absolutely not that whatsoever. It's learning how to work with it. Absolutely. Dancing with it rather than trying to fight it off. The way I always thought about it with fighting was like, it was like I was getting into the ring every time with two opponents, my own self and my own fear and my actual opponent, which is useless because actually the part that I was making up was way bigger than the real person standing in front of me. But the moment I knew that something was had really changed for me, it was a long journey because I had to come back, not just from the emotional stuff, but also from the physical stuff. And so it was a long and in many ways begrudging journey. But when I knew I'd made a change was when I was stepping, I was warming up to fight for the national boxing championships. And it was the final and normally in that situation, I would be sort of beside myself with fear. All around me, there were these other, the other fighters were sitting there with towels draped over their anxious faces and you know, everyone waiting for their moment. And it's all very, very lonely because you're the only one in that ring. But this time, instead of feeling completely freaked out or panicking about what I'd been told about my opponent, I'd been told that she was a big hitter. I'd be panicking that she was going to hurt me or that I was going to get humiliated. Really, that was the main fear that I was going to get knocked out and humiliated. Instead of all that, I was just present in my warm up. I remember skipping and listening to the, the song of this skipping rope whistling past my ears. And when I stepped out to fight, one step after the other, I was actually present and in my body. It was really weirdly calm in this room full of people. I remember thinking that it was a bit like the crowd had been hushed by this like crisp layer of freshly fallen snow. And the stillness in my mind was interrupted solely by this curious little voice that said, you've got this. But this was not an arrogant, I'm going to win because I'm the best voice. It was different to that. The difference was that I knew that if I got in there and fought my best and got the win, 
that I deserved it. And when I did, I got in, I got in there and I fought and she was a tough opponent and, you know, not all of the fight went my way. But at the end, I did know that I'd won, which again was new. Normally, I, I won most of my fights. Most of the time I was convinced I'd lost them. At the end, I knew I'd won. And when I was waiting for the referee to raise my hand, I had this surge of alien emotion. And I'm not sure if it's pride or happiness or just a good old fashioned sense of achievement. But it was new because up until that point, every time my hand had been raised, I'd hung my head and averted my eyes. Mm. I can say now that what I'd been feeling upon victory up until that point was shame. I was ashamed of winning because I didn't feel like I deserved it. And that was why I wrote off every achievement up till that point as, you know, fluke or chance or just not actually good enough and I shouldn't have got the win. But on that day, I was able to own the victory. And that was when I absolutely knew that my perspective has changed. And interestingly, it's also when I knew I didn't need to box anymore. That's incredible. I just finished a retreat and we talked a lot about how people were so able to love and compliment each other. But when it was their turn to receive, suddenly they had to go to the bathroom or they needed to get a drink of water because it's so uncomfortable when you don't feel worthy or deserving. Uh, and then, you know, as they did the work and the retreat was ending and you could see the growth uh, and they could receive and see yeah. that in them. It is. It's like you hold your head up high. Your back is, you know, your shoulders are yeah. stronger. And it's an entirely different way of living life. Yeah. You see it in yourself and you start to see it in everyone else. It's amazing how that reflection, the, the relationship you have with yourself is reflected onto every other relationship you have, even ones that are basically in passing. And when I'd made these kinds of changes, my friendships changed dramatically. I mean, lots of them lots of them disappeared because they weren't really people that I connected with. But my partnerships were the same, you know, romantic partnerships that also disappeared. And then I got a new partner, which was a totally different deal, you know, because I was a different person. I was no longer just, I, I mean, I can say this looking back and I wouldn't have realized it at the time, but when I was getting into fighting and that moment when I clicked, you know, in the first session, and I, I, I had this sort of reflection a few months after starting fighting. I remembered that I'd had these fantasies of being like a warrior woman when I was a teenager. This was, I mean, I did not come from a fighter type family. My parents were both academics. My dad was into stamp collecting. My mom is an avid bird watcher. Like fighter was not on the plan for their daughter. But I had still, you know, I'd loved She-Ra and I was obsessed with Chitara from um, Thundercats when I was younger and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer when I was in my teens. Uh, and these things had just got filed away. And when I went into the boxing gym, the kickboxing gym, actually, at that point, I felt like a bit like Buffy. I'd found my calling because it was, you know, I was just like, oh, this is it. I look back on that now and I'm like, I this, that was not the sound of a true calling. What that was was the moment when I realized there was this thing that promised to allow me to fight off the sense of insecurity that I've had for such a long time by becoming this warrior character. You know, I idolized all the big fighters at the gym and I thought it was my ticket to worthiness. I thought this was how I was going to do it. And I also, you know, you learn to desensitize yourself quite literally from the pain you go through as a fighter, but also from the pain you dish out you know, you just, it's part of the game. If you break someone's nose, you could feel a bit bad about it, but it's just part of the game, you know? 
now looking back, I realized that I actually found that really, I think it was really damaging to me to be in this situation where I was harming and being harmed as a matter of course. I say that, I think it might've been, of course it was damaging. I mean, ludicrous, right? But I just, it wasn't, so it wasn't for me. And, and ultimately I had to go through that process and I had to meet the very sticky wall of fear in the middle of it in order to come to that realization. And everyone who doesn't feel worthy does things in their own way. Do you think yours was physically letting yourself be punished? Like you were literally being beaten up. Yeah, probably. But I also think there was, you know, the other side of it too. I think that it was a double sword, double bladed sword. You know, I, on the one side I was being punished like that. On the other side, I was tempting myself with this promise to be able to dominate. And I think, you know, again, this was not present in my mind at the time. And it could be a, a rationalization. I don't know. But you see that quite a lot in fighting sports as well. Um, and, uh, and that now is the thing that, that sits most uncomfortably for me about that whole time. Um, so there must be something in it, really. But everything, you're right, everybody, it, it's out of this fear or sense of disconnection or sense of unworthiness that every single problem that we struggle with comes from. You know, people walk into therapy with a problem. It doesn't just come from nowhere. There is something underneath it, some kind of pain, some kind of wound that is creating that situation, usually because the thing that you're doing is a, is a failing coping mechanism. And so for me, all of the fighting stuff was a coping mechanism that ultimately ended up harming me more than, more than it solved any problems. And I talk all this of the work I do is I talk, you know, with the invisibles, physical injuries we can see. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of us are walking around with things that we're hurting that no one else can see. And now you're dealing with that stuff. Uh, but mm -hmm. everyone, everyone could see what you were visibly injured with. That's easier to talk about. That's, that's easier for others to say, oh, you know, let me hold that door for you. Let, yeah. let me let me do this. The, the world doesn't understand this intangible depression or anxiety, you know, unless you've lived it, it's, it's difficult to help someone else really understand. People think it's just sad. Anxiety, mm -hmm. just worrying. Yeah. And even if you have lived it, it's still difficult to care for people and fully understand what they're going through. We can never understand anyone else's experience fully. And I think it's even harder sometimes when you've been through that that kind of thing to see other people going through something similar because then it's even it can be uncomfortable as well to see all this stuff that you did in inverted commas wrong being reflected back in somebody else's experience. So it's literally never easy to relate to somebody who's in that dark place, which makes it even harder to be in that place in the first place. I think it, it, we're literally in the middle of Mental Illness Awareness Week right now. And I think the most important thing for anyone struggling is finding others who get it. No one will have the exact same path, but we relate to so many people in so many different ways. I had people from all over the United States dealing with all different things, but they all found something in each other's story, whether, it, you know, one little piece and they were able to connect and say, 
Like we, we all belong together. And, and, and when we stay silent and when we don't talk about the invisible things, we deny ourselves and each other the ability to connect and, and bond and figure out that we aren't alone. And, and so then we feel alone and isolate and go through it. And it's so overwhelming and it seems like no one gets it. And while we don't have anyone who has the exact path, there are people who have pieces and can relate and want to bond and, you know, share, share tools and tips and just say, I'm here for you. Absolutely. It's the whole shame doesn't uh, survive in the light thing. You know, we, we need it. Uh, we need to be expressing these things in one way or another. I mean, but I think that's another thing that, that, that gets misunderstood, that people think that we have to go and talk to somebody about these things in order to express them and I don't actually think that's true. You know, there are many ways that we can express things. We just need to find a modality that feels safe or at least one that feels safe as a way in because it can usually lead to the ability to speak about these things ultimately, which is which is a great place to get to. But um, there's, I think a big problem with all of this stuff is that the shame around it makes it very hard for people even to go there to understand it themselves. And so we end up just blocked from the experience you know I was so emotionally dissociated before I burnt out I mean I can remember having I know now that what must have been happening was I was having panic attacks and I would have these panic attacks multiple times a day and I was so clueless about my emotional experience or my body that I just I didn't know what it was I didn't I just thought maybe I was ill um which is crazy, you know, now I know exactly what that feels like, but I, I just didn't have the skills. I didn't have the connection. So it was a long journey to get to the place where I could eloquently express those things. Even though much of the world does know what that is, I was with people who understand anxiety and they were asking is an anxiety attack the same thing as a panic attack? And I didn't know. And I, you know, I had to explain that emergency rooms are filled with probably X number of cases per day of people who think they're having a heart attack, think they're having an asthma attack, the physical symptoms mimic. And so I don't know that we know in those moments, our brain isn't functioning. We are so overwhelmed. And so logic right now, we can discuss it, but when we're in the height of that turmoil, rationality leaves. Logic yeah. is gone. And you just go for the, you, you start thinking the worst because you are, you are anxious and that's what the anxious brain does. It starts to look for the fear. And if you've got a generalized anxiety disorder or if you have generalized anxiety, then the moment you're anxious, you will start looking for a fear that necessarily present in your life. And so you just turn everything into these scary monsters, which is really what I was getting at with the whole mind monster solution thing you know my monster was just this fear that was following me around and until I dared to embrace it that monster would turn anything into a possibility for humiliation or threat or it would turn people into uh, you know I would just assume that somebody was being mean about me when they weren't you know things like that because this 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 lens over my eyes was completely deluding me and changing the very world I existed in to something that was more frightening than it needed to be. And it takes someone outside of that 
to be able to help you say, let's flip that. You know, what, what's the opposite side of that? What if this person is your biggest fan? Like what, what could the opposite side of that be? We can't do it. And you know, when, when we're, we only see this way. Yeah. I need people to reach out to, to say, am I overreacting? Can you think of another way to look at this? I only have my perspective. There are these sort of moments, aren't there, when when a story that once felt true for you suddenly just suddenly doesn't. And I think that this is it's never about one big change. There are lots of little changes and little moments that come together until at one point you go, oh, that's funny. Yeah, I used to believe that about myself. And now I don't. Um, Most of the time, obviously, in the world of therapy, you're talking about negative stories. That may also happen with positive ones. Um, But, you know, even after years of working as a therapist and really um, looking a lot into the negative stories or limiting beliefs or whatever we want to call that sort of perspective, those perspectives that we all have, even after years of working on this and really working through my, my big ones, when I was writing my book, I remember, so my, in my book, every chapter starts with a, a little sort of anecdotal section, usually about my life. Um, and those are kind of they're quite sort of almost poetic, those bits. So not really logical like the rest of the book. And I remember somebody asking me, how's the writing going? And I said, yeah, it's all right. I mean, the bits about the studies and the logic are fine. I'm not really very good at creative writing, though. So the other bits are. And then I kind of stopped mid-sentence. I went, hang on a minute. <laughs> That's a limiting. But I just never even realized that that was there and in that moment because that was uh, quite a small one for me and when I when I realized I had this insecurity that wasn't necessarily based on any kind of reality I also remembered being I remember being in English class at school I was not good at English because I was dyslexic nobody had picked up on this because I'm quite old and female um so you know and it wasn't so bad that I couldn't write at all but my spelling was atrocious um my reading was really bad um so English was not a great experience for me. And I remember being asked to write a description of my best friend. And I'd written this description. I think I'd said something like her our eyes mounted on and like cheekbones that protrude or something like that. And my teacher had like red marked it all over. It's come came back saying, sounds disgusting. And at that moment, I thought, OK, so creative writing is a thing I can't do. And it was just such a small thing. But I had hung on to that story until I was... 40 years old and writing a book and so and I reflected it back and went oh hang on a minute that's not necessarily true I could give it a go and after that the creative parts of the book were absolutely the bits that a I was most proud of and enjoyed doing the most that brings me to what we were talking about self-care and how it should be fun when I talk to many teenagers about things that are fun they often talk about not doing things they're not good at, Yeah. right? When we're younger than a teenager, we do anything. We don't care if we fall on our face. We don't care if everybody laughs, but the world intervenes. And then there's this fear of being judged. And we only, most people will, you know, do the things they excel at. Life is about fun, right? Like, I love laughing at me. So does everyone else, but I really enjoy it too. Um, and, and we don't have to be good at everything. No. And if we stick with something that we aren't immediately good at, we will get much better. You know, I, I, I'm in a real mix with that in a personal sense, because in many respects, I'm a really growth minded person. 
So I, I absolutely, you know, get the bit between my teeth with a thing and then I just learn and learn and learn. I don't worry about those frustrating moments. But then there are these other situations like the creative writing thing where I had just written it off. But I think one of the main problems we have with that fixed mindset, talent focused um, perspective, you know, in the world is anything creative. Because anything creative is skilled. And nobody comes out of the womb an amazing painter. It just doesn't happen. Um, but for some reason, we think that we should be able to do it immediately. And uh, and this, for me, is the biggest crime. I mean, also, it's all sort of messed up in the school system anyway, because we get graded on our art, which doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely subjective. But of course, they have to do that in order for it to be a course. But it, it whole thing sets us up for this awful situation. And I, you know, I like I said, I did an art degree. But then after that, I really, I mean, art was another situation where I came out of art school. I did really well at art school. I got a first, my thesis was published. You know, none of this was proof enough for me to know that, that I was good. I had one exhibition and then I never went looking for any more because I just was too afraid of people laughing me out the room or whatever. So I went and worked in a bar instead and then eventually got into kickboxing. But when I'd been through the whole therapy journey and written my book, and Ellie came and proposed Betwixt, which is a very, very creative way of doing this. I got this opportunity to come back to this, my all of these childhood and teenage loves that I'd had doing the design and the photography stuff that goes with it and writing a creative story. I was like, oh, where's this been all my life? I'd been just avoiding pretty much anything like that because I wasn't, you know, Magritte. We do have things we're naturally talented things are natural gifts. Like you said, there are things we practice and learn and grow into. And I absolutely have things that I'm just not the best at that are uh, stressful that I would much rather delegate that, that I have things I would rather be doing and someone else can get done quicker. But the belief that um, I will never, and I can't do this because I will never be the best at it eliminates fun you know just I I'm not tall but that doesn't mean I can't go out and shoot hoops with tall people I don't have to be a, a basketball star you know it eliminates growth as well that's the really really painful thing about that because nobody's going to be brilliant at everything they try and if we run away from the things we have to work at I listened to actually I listened to a, a brilliant Huberman lab podcast the other day about neuroplasticity so neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to reshape itself and basically what happening what's happening when we learn things and when we are kids it's just constantly happening we're like little sponges absorbing everything when we get over the age of something like 22 23 that stops being so readily available to us and so we are only in a state of plasticity in very specific situations very specific cocktail of of uh brain stuffs technical term um and and the the cocktail of brain stuffs that we need for learning is a lot about feeling stressed um and feeling frustrated we need those um alert uh, neurotransmitters activated for the brain to think okay this is something we have to learn and so what this means in practice is that if you're trying to let's say take the shooting hoops thing if you're trying to make free throws and you keep making mistakes, if you stick with that and stay in the frustration of it, you will activate neuroplasticity in your brain and you will learn to do it better. 
if you do a few and get frustrated and then think I'm giving myself a break or worse, I can't do this, I'm no good at it or I'm no good at anything, what you actually do is activate neuroplasticity and then program in the belief that you're no good at anything. So quitting rather than pushing through the frustration makes us just infinitely more likely as time goes on to keep quitting and not believing in our ability to do anything. And I loved that because it makes so much sense. I'm sure, we don't have to just hammer away at absolutely everything in life. That's not how it is. You know, we're going to enjoy some things. We won't enjoy others. We'll be good at some things. We won't be so good at others. Not everything has to be pushed through. But if we, but, but this bit of information helps us to know that we really do need to push through with the things that are important to us. And if we do, we'll get better because of the frustration, not in spite of it. So what's the difference between taking a break and quitting? Exactly. It's, yeah, I mean, what is the difference? It's authentic connection to the thing, I guess. So let's talk about Betwixt. Tell me, because my clients think that self-care means setting aside four hours on a Saturday, you know, when no one is around and they have to take the kids here and the schedule doesn't allow it. And let's not set aside time for me. I have to, everybody else comes first. So I focus a lot on making ourselves a priority and finding five minutes yeah. versus five hours. Uh, but there is this perception that there, you know, you have to have this huge chunk of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which of course is absolutely not true. I mean, so many changes can be made in a, in a, an action that takes literal seconds, as long as you do it a few times a day. Um, that's not what the Betwixt is about so much. I mean, Betwixt, is it's an eleven chapter choose your own adventure game, oh, um, set in a, in a. I know exactly. I mean, uh, we were like my my business partner is is the is thirty something, so she's ten years younger than me, but she vaguely remembers choose your own adventure books, and I remember them very well. Um, and of course, they were cumbersome things in hard copy. You know, they just meant you had to write an enormous book and you had to keep flicking through the pages. But it is perfect for a digital app. So we were like, well, let's see if we can do it. And we, we created, we worked with lots of different people along the way. Our eventual story was written by a brilliant uh, World Fantasy Award winning author, Natalia Theodora Du. It's a fantastical world called The In-Between, which responds to your thoughts and feelings. And you find yourself stranded in this place at first. So you sort of wake up into this place. It's basically just white because there's only snow there. That whole thing is a metaphor for this kind of numb, dissociated state we're always in before we decide to work on whatever it is we want to work on. And then you start to hear this curious voice come somewhere from the back of, back of your head um, who talks to you. And you gradually befriend and create trust in this voice who starts to explain the world just needs you to learn one thing before it will help you escape. And that is for you to be able to see yourself clearly. And so with the help of the voice and with the help of the metaphors in the world, you go through these dreams, 11 dreams, 11 chapters, each one focusing on a different element of either self-awareness, self-compassion or emotion regulation. The idea was to bring important theories and tools from psychology and therapy into the narrative so that it doesn't, doesn't feel like you're doing the work when you're doing the work. You're reading a story, you're participating in the story. In fact, you're co-authoring the story because one of the brilliant things about doing this digitally instead of hardback is that, hard copy, sorry, is that the players don't just make choices when an option arises. 
which would have what it would have to be in a, in a book, of course. But we've also added in the option for people to write into the game and using a sentence completion uh, functionality means that we can then take that, swap the pronoun, pro pronouns around from me to you, and the voice in the game can, can, can parrot back what they've said and the game itself can parrot back what they've said. So if they've said they want to work on achieving a calmer mind, that is brought back in throughout the game and you're reminded of this goal to have a calmer mind. And you can write in what you see in the distance, or for example, and then that thing is there, that's in the distance. So it's your version of this world. No one else will have the same thing. Um, the idea being just to build those three important skills, you know, the ability to, to regulate your emotions, the, the ability and the, the means to practice self-compassion, which is so, so important, and this sort of building up of self-awareness throughout the game that means that you end up walking away a stronger person. We, we've had, we've got lots of studies going on looking into it. We've been really, really keen on making sure we have proper independent research behind the game um, because with a lot of mental health apps, the research isn't actually independent. So it's kind of scientifically iffy because there's a conflict of, of interests. Um, so we were like, why well, we, we're not going to do that. Also, we don't want to pay for studies anyway. So, so we've found amazing researchers who are interested in the area and they've conducted independent research and our first bit of research has come back from a 500 person, person study and it's shown a decrease of approximately 30 percent in both stress and anxiety after two weeks of play and that was conducted with our beta version and only the first four dreams so we're really looking forward to continuing that research with the full thing but it I mean that was so exciting I was especially with everything so rough I really didn't know if we were going to see any results in that study but the fact that we did just solidified my sense of, of purpose with this and I fully believe that the relationship you form with the voice which everyone always says is weirdly real and the magical world and the uh, the option to engage in a metaphorical visual creative way with 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 yourself and your blocks I believe that that is really really a part of how we create change and I think that those things need to be where digital self-help type mental health programs need to go. So I complete the 11 chapters. Oh, I amazing. Keep, I keep going. I can oh, just I see. Yeah, I, thought, I thought you said you had. I was like, I didn't think you'd No, go. no. Well, choose your own adventure. I would just do, I would just read over and over and over again because you can do a new, it's never you the can, same twice. No, no. I mean, and also people focus on different things when they go through it. But um, yeah, no, at the moment we need to write more stories. So at the moment you play the game. And at the end of it, there is a new dream called the infinite dream, which goes on uh, infinitely, if you wanted to, which has self-reflection questions in it. It's not a story in quite the same way, but it allows you to stay engaged. There are also lots of additional processes. There are guided meditations and there are replayable processes from all the dreams, which is taking the story out essentially and just giving you the therapy tool, which means that if you come up against a problem, you can say, oh, I think that thing from dream four would be helpful here and you can go back and do it. But ultimately, we want to write. I've got the idea for the next story in my head already. I'm really excited about it. And we've got the author as well, I think. Um, I want to write a load of stories. So you can it, you step into this world of betwixt and you finish one story and then you can go and browse through the other ones. And you can choose a story based on what the story is or you can choose a story based on what it focuses on. You know, we're going to have a mindfulness one and an anxiety one, you know, different elements going into more detail. Uh, just imagine this sort of beautiful fantasy universe of of all these stories that have this secondary benefit of helping you with your mental health in some way do you work with 
clients as well or is this your work this is my work now I, I I stopped seeing clients I think a year and a half ago when we got a big enough grant to be able to pay our wages which was really at that point extremely necessary because it's so much work and it's impossible to juggle everything um, and I was tired yes um, if people are listening and connecting and have questions and say but but I want to talk to you <laughs> and now you're not seeing clients. Can they email? Can they reach out? Absolutely. You can email me at hazel at betwixt.life. So that's B-E-T-W-I-X-T dot life, L-I-F-E. Um, you can also catch me on TikTok. My best social media channel is TikTok, but I'm also on Instagram. But I mean, that one's tiny, um, which is betwixt.app. Um, and you can come along to our Discord server as well. You know, there's a link to that in our link tree and all those social media um, places. So there's plenty of ways to get in touch with us. And the apps, the app themselves, the apps, both of them, the iOS one and the Android one, are on the App Store and the Play Store. What else is in? What else is going on in your world? What else should people know? I mean, Betwixt is pretty much everything in my world at the moment. Of course, there's the book. Uh, the book's been out quite a while. The book is called The Mind Monster Solution. It was published in 2018. And it was the inspiration for Betwixt, actually. I, I only learned this recently. Ellie, Ellie had the idea of creating this story. And she came to me and proposed the idea nervously because she thought I would say it was a ridiculous idea and it would never work. But she didn't realize that it was literally my perfect job. And only a few months ago, she said, you do know that it was after I read your book that I came up with the idea. There's a whole section in my book on metaphor and the importance of imagery and how it how it leads to change if you use it in the right way. And that was when she came up with this idea. I was like, I did not know that. That's like a lovely sort of full circle situation. So, yeah, the book is a is a kind of sister act, really, to Betwixt, I suppose. And that's available on Amazon. Yeah, on Amazon. Yeah. So anything I'm not asking? I don't know. One thing that just popped into my head was I, because, I, because I was saying about the importance of metaphor. And when I was writing the book, I, I, I used the metaphor, the monster metaphor, as um, a, a vehicle for the book. You know, in my therapy sessions at that point, I hadn't been calling the monsters. They were just parts. And I'm always talking about monsters. But when I wrote about metaphor in the book, you know, I was really basically talking about the importance of using the right words and how words can influence us and images can influence us. And so I ended up, the, so the monster in Betwixt doesn't end up a monster and the monster in the book doesn't end up a monster either. It, it, there was this brilliant moment. This can be my last story, this brilliant moment. I, I, was, I was coming to the end of writing the book and I was thinking, okay, so the monster can't be a monster at the end, but how the hell do I change its name? Mm -hmm. And I'd been mulling over this for a couple of weeks. And then I found my art school thesis and I, I hadn't seen this in ages I picked it up and I thought oh you know I was writing my book I was like, I'll read through this and a little smug part of me wanted to see how much I'd improved in my writing but what actually happened is I read the first page and I didn't understand half the bloody words and I was like I'm not got better at anything I'm stupid I don't even understand what I was thinking about in my 20s had a real moment of panic and then I was like hang on a minute you know you're doing a monster thing went into the kitchen to have a talk with myself and click the kettle on to boil and calmed myself down while the kettle was boiling. And in that moment, just as I started to get calm, I don't know where it came from, but it popped into my head that the word monster is an anagram for the word mentors. And I was like, what? Okay, 
That's exactly how this needs to be changed. If you reframe the way you look at the parts of yourself that you see as monstrous, they turn into lessons. And of course they do. And at first I was annoyed that, that monster was an anagram of mentors, plural, not mentor, singular. But then I realized that even that was a good thing because we turn our issues into one big monster when actually it's just a series of learnings. So yeah, my final thought is that even though I'm talking about monsters all the time, it doesn't mean we have to accept this idea that we have these monstrous parts of ourselves. We only ever have teachers. Well, I the my last name's Ruth, uh, ruthless mental illness. So many things in this world with negative connotations. I look at as the biggest gifts. So I think we share the outlook on that. So thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and all of your knowledge with us. Everyone connect with Hazel. Get betwixt on on your app stores. Um, any other any other links I'm forgetting? Not that come to mind now. I'll share everything in the show notes. We'll connect everywhere. Um, such wisdom, amazing stories. I appreciate all of this. Until next time, everyone, always be ruthless. Thanks so much for listening today. Your support means everything to me, truly. If this podcast resonates with you, please do me a favor and join in the Ruthless Movement by making some noise and doing one of these four things. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell a friend so we can break stigmas even faster. Leave a review so people can see what you think of the show. And last, if you want to learn more about me and be a part of the Grief Hub community, please head on over to the Facebook group. We'd love to have you. Thanks again for spending your time with us and see you next week.